Welcome to Improv Interview. This is Margot Escott, improviser and psychotherapist in Naples, Florida. And Improv Interviews podcast started when I realized I was not the only therapist in the world who was using improvisational theater techniques in my classes and with my clients. And one of my heroes has been Lisa Case, who's been doing incredible work in Washington, D.C. And I'm so happy to have her on. We spoke to you about two and a half years ago. And a lot of things have changed in your life, I think. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Things are different these days. You have a family now. Yes. Yeah, I had a family then, but it's it's bigger now. We have one more. Okay. It's so. terrific. <laughs> they keep us young, right? Yes, they do. Or old. I'm not sure if they're aging me or keeping me young. <laughs> well, sometimes one or the other, I guess. So let's talk a little bit about improv for therapists and improv that you're using with your clients. Let's start with improv for therapists and talk about how you developed a model and what kind of trainings you're providing because it's such a great thing to provide for therapists. There are so many comments on your website about what improv gave to several therapists. So how did you develop it and what's it like? Sure. So I developed it sort of by accident. Um, I had been think when I got my MSW, I started researching and thinking a lot about the intersection of therapy. And just because everything that I was learning in my MSW skill wise, I realized was connected to the skills used in improv. So I started to research the connections and I thought I was like the first person to ever discover this um, and that I was going to be some great pioneer. But then I realized that improv was actually born out of social work in the settlement houses um, and that there had been quite a lot of research done on improv and mental health, improv and well-being, improv used as therapy. So improv for therapists came about because a colleague of mine basically said, I want to do improv, but I'm afraid of being in there with patients that I refer, because she referred people into improv. And she said, I think I'd feel safer with just therapists to be able to do it with. So I said, okay, well, I can try it. And uh, Washington Improv Theater, where I was on the faculty at the time, was kind enough to let me launch this experiment. And basically what I did was I took the standard eight week intro to improv course but I modified it slightly in that we took time at the end to do clinical debriefs to talk about how this, was a this would be applicable to our patients. We sometimes looked at clinical case studies, but really what it, was, what it became about, what was of interest to people, was really looking at how they were able to see themselves as therapists and to change. Or um, like, for instance, some people would realize, oh, I'm like, sitting back way too much and I could be way more active. And so they would practice with taking risks and being more active. And some people were realizing through the improv scenes and through what we were learning, like, oh, I'm probably doing way too much for my patients. Like maybe I can actually sit back. So I would say probably 20% of it was about clinical case studies and looking at patients. And the other 80% was really about just the growth of the therapist, the ability to see themselves, see certain traits that they may have thought of as quote unquote, not good, as really actually very positive and vice versa, um, through the improv work and the scene work and through feedback from their fellow clinicians they were taking the class with. And you structured it as an eight week group. Was it two hours a week or? It was uh, two and a half a week. And then currently I do it 
when I do, now that I'm not with Washington Improv Theater anymore, I have more flexibility. So I do it as sometimes two hour classes. It really sort of depends on the, the time frame that, that works. Um, and I've also been brought into a number of organizations and agencies to do it as workshops, like one time workshops for their staff. Um, and so, and that's also very effective to do just a three hour or a six hour workshop for folks and let them experiment. That was really how, because my interest has always been in using improv for actually for patients. The therapists were sort of, initially they were guinea pigs kind of, where I was learning how to do this um, in a clinical therapeutic way and what the emotional tools were and the learning was for mental health that could come out of improv. So I started doing it as, and I still do it as CEU workshops for therapists and social workers. Um, I sometimes do it around themes like addiction or um, I'm, I have one coming up on using our expertise and I've done some stuff around imposter syndrome with it. So um, the therapists were kind of my learning ground. And then once I felt like I had something and that it was really beneficial to people, then I started doing it with patients um, and doing it more as a therapy tool. And you do it with individuals, couples, groups? Yes, typically, mostly I do it with groups. I now run improv therapy groups, and those are eight-week groups. Um, they meet for an hour and 15 minutes, just like a normal psychotherapy group. And I also sometimes will bring out, it's harder to do improv one-on-one, -on -one, um, you know, because it requires a group. But there are some exercises I bring out in my individual therapy, and it's amazing what it can kind of unearth and help with. And then yes, with couples, there are some things that are really good as assessment tools or just at kind of helping them communicate in different ways or even just have fun with each other. I find that with some couples, they just haven't laughed or enjoyed each other in quite some time. And so I'll use games for that. Right, and getting them to play again together. Exactly. Learning to play is so vitally important. Now, you know my friend, Dan Weiner. And yes, I do. Growth, and uh, he's really one of our pioneers, I'd say. Yes, he is. Work. And uh, have you done some of his workshops at all as well? Or Yes, I think I'm now at the intermediate level. I'm not sure what level I'm at, but I've done um, two or three of his training sessions and I brought him down to Washington, D.C. to work with me and some other folks because um, I love, I mean, he's obviously, his book was the one where I realized like, oh, this is a thing that people do. Um, so he's obviously a really important mentor and figure. Um, and yeah, so I, I've trained and learned from him um, and really enjoyed that. And I think he really was important in validating sort of my initial instinct about this. I do what I do differently than him, um, but he's always been a supportive and, and important figure for me. Yeah, he's an incredibly generous person. Yes. So talented. But I have my own style. We all kind of have our own styles and our own games and exercises. And now, do you ever tailor a game for a specific problem? Do you think that's possible? Yes, it's totally possible. I do, I do it a lot. Um, I'll kind of say to people, like, I don't know if this is going to work. Um, and that's when you know I've sort of gone off on the trail of I am now going to just make something literally up on the spot. And the last time I did that was in our imposter. I did an imposter syndrome workshop with Gracie, Gracie Abushowitz, who's a very gifted um, life coach here who works around self-care. 
And I think what I did, I did some amalgamation of a storytelling game based on, I can't remember, based on um, stories or snippets that they had told about themselves. And I had them do two person, um, what we call conflict scenes. But usually I do the conflict scenes about something that I sort of make up, you know, like you're, you're an officer arresting someone, like that's your conflict. But I actually did it around the actual conflict in their lives. Um, and I had them sort of shape it into the opposite of what was going on in their lives. Um, and just the heightening. And, and it worked tremendously well. I'm, it's hard to explain right now. But I definitely will take games. We're just kind of, now I've got the confidence to literally just invent games on the spot. Where if I can see there's a skill that a group needs to work with, I have enough improv kind of background to be like, okay, let's set up some layup lines and I'm going to, you know, set them up in X, Y, Z way. So I definitely think, but it's certainly been trial and error to do that. I've had a lot where it's like, oh, that didn't work. Okay. Um, right. But I definitely, my patients and students will say like, oh yeah, she invents things just as she's going. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's improv, isn't it? She knows what she's doing. Yeah. <laughs> So tell me more about some of the things you get back from the students. What do you actually get when you're doing uh, with your group members rather and students? What do you get back, Lisa? In terms of personally? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's a really good question. I think for me, improv was such an important tool for my growth. Um, you know, when I came into it, it was hard for me to play. It's still sometimes hard for me to do and to access certain things. And so for me, and I think too, I was hard on myself as an improviser and I was probably too hard on my students initially because I was coming from a, you know, I was teaching the way I had been trained to teach. Um, but I love now just help seeing people freed up and kind of saying to them like, who said that has to be funny or who said that has to be X, Y, Z and kind of watching them question like, Oh, you didn't say it had to be funny. You just said to like, you know, say a line or say something. And so watching people look at their own expectations of themselves and question them and then be free from them to kind of play and really have fun. Um, really helps me do that through my daily life. It helps me, I think, play with my kids better. Um, but I just, I don't know. I just love watching people play and, and get freed up um, and just learning in that way. I think improv is such a unique way to learn because we literally forget how to play as we grow up. And I think watching people rediscover that is just, I mean, no matter how many times I do it, I, I do sometimes, you know, now I'm like, okay, I've been teaching this like eight week class for so long and it, it can get kind of boring, but I still find myself like giggling at, you know, so, like it's, it's just fun to watch people remember how to have fun. I don't know. It's a, it's really, and I think I see different things as a therapist in my patients. I see them being brave in ways that I can't, see in general therapy because it's talking about something whereas improv i'm actually watching them do it and struggle right. um and i don't know it's it's a gift i think to be able to watch people work through that because i know how hard it was for me to work through some things through improv and you did improv before your msw 
Yes, I was improvising for quite a few years. I was teaching by the time I started my MSW. That's terrific. Yeah. So there are so many parallels. And I think, you know, remembering that from the social work tradition is where improv really came from in this country. I mean, there's yeah. other forms and teachers, but to me, Viola is a teacher. Yeah. So I, you know, always go back to her. And I think you mentioned the thing about, you know, kind of judging ourselves as the leader, the therapist sometimes. And sometimes it's hard to get out of that. When I first started teaching, I call it regular improv. I found that I was, I was too attached to the rules, you know, yeah. and, and I'd be saying no a lot. And I yeah. realized I was saying no. And what the hell was wrong with me? And then someone said, you know, Margot, there might be a hundred, hundred ways to play a game, but maybe you don't know the hundred and first. Right. And so to remove my ego from that was a challenge. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I think there's that. And I think we are also taught that way. Like the way I was trained as an improviser, there were some quote unquote wrong moves or, you know, and so I think I was doing that too, kind of saying like, no, do that, you know, no. And then, and now I hardly ever, I don't think I've done that. And I don't know how long. I, and I think that comes from confidence too, of being like, I can work with anything. I can make it work. Um, but that's taken years, I think. But I agree. When I started out, I can't, I mean, I kind of cringe when I think about myself as an early teacher. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I also know that so much of that was, you're right, ego, my own nerves. You know, do I know what I'm doing? Do they know what they're doing? And now I have so much more trust in improv as a tool in myself, in the groups I work with, that it comes up much less. Now, you're still doing, you do groups with patients, group with therapists. Do you do any other specific group like improv for anxiety or anything like that? I don't. Um, I decided that I wanted to just do improv, basically improv. I, a friend helped me name them, Brett Howard. He was like, call it improv informed therapy. So that's what I call my therapy groups. And they're basically a mix of a process talk therapy group and improv games. And I thought about grouping them off, like having one for addiction, having one for anxiety, having one for, you know, um, relationship issues. But I found, I find that by having them be more general, everybody still gets what they need. Like even if somebody's struggling with anxiety, um, you know, anxiety is showing up in addiction and, you know, anxiety shows up in relationship stuff. So I've now found that I just mix them up and everybody's kind of working on their own thing and it works fine. I've done them, like when I go into a rehab center, I'm doing like improv around addiction themes. Um, you know, and so I can cater it, but I don't do that generally in my practice. Well, I think there's a lot of parallels talking about addiction, many parallels between the 12 steps of recovery that most, most people use, I believe, mm -hmm. and improv. There's so many parallels between it, like acceptance and saying yes instead of saying no. Right. And uh, just that whole idea of feeling better about yourself, improving yourself. And do you do mindfulness in your classes as well? I found that to be very helpful. I inject that in my classes. I don't formally. I know like um, some folks that do, like Kate Symes does a lot of that, of yoga, mindfulness, and improv. 
I feel like improv is mindfulness. Yes. So I guess I will point out like, this is basically mindfulness, you know, when we're doing Zen count, but I don't really teach it as a separate thing very often. You mentioned Zen count and you produced this year a series of games with explanations and clinical applications. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And if there's a way people can get that, they're really helpful to me. I love them. Yes. Um, I get asked so often for the instructions for how to play my games. And so I decided to write them all out in a constructive way for people. Like they're kind of like game sheet guides. Um, and so, and I had a colleague help me format them and kind of make them palatable. And then I have them on a Gumroad site where people can download them um, and, and use them as need be. And they have like an explanation of how to play the game. They have different applications of the game, like what kind of group would this work for, how to tailor the game to get different lessons out of it. And then the debrief questions, because I really think games are valuable. Games are awesome and wonderful. And then I find that the real power often comes in the debrief afterwards, where you really look at what was going on in everybody's head, what are the things they're not saying, what were their anxieties. And so it kind of walks through how to do that. And isn't Yes Walk on one of them? Do you have Yes, yes, yes I call it Yes Move, but Yes, yes Walk move. is probably, yeah. That has been the hardest game for me. I was with a group of social workers and I had like 30 people in the group and I couldn't, I couldn't remember the names of most anybody. It was terrible. And I was very uncomfortable the first time I taught it. It's gotten easier. Have you tried it non-verbally so no. that you don't have to have the names? No. How do you do that? Well, I, I do it a lot when I do like one-off workshops and you're never going to know everybody's name. So and I think this is on the game sheet that I did. I hope it is. If not, I should adjust it. But I do it with just a um, eye contact towards the person and then a nod, which teaches kind of the nonverbal skills that you're using in improv anyway. But it's really good for games, for groups where they don't know each other's names either. So you just do it like, you know, make eye contact. you got to make it really clear who you're looking at, which we need to do in improv anyway. And then the person nods. So it's a silent game. There's no, um, but you don't need to know everybody's name. Little trick. And then they have to not make eye contact and nod with somebody else across the circle before right. they can move. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So the eye contact is used in, instead of stating their name, which That's is better. Brilliant. I love that. Yeah. Better for big groups and groups where you don't know everybody's name or they don't know each other's names. Now, are you making a, are you writing a book? Are you? I am, yes, I'm working on a book. The game sheets came out of it and I realized I might as well just go ahead and release them. Um, but I have the book about probably quarter to a halfway-ish done. Wow, um, terrific, I, that's a lot of work. Yes, and with two, it's gotten slowed down a bit with the, with the two young kids, um, but I work on it whenever I have a free moment. Um, my practice has gotten busier, so I haven't worked on it in a while, but it's, it's coming along little by little. Maybe we can motivate you today. Create some <laughs> motivation here, Lisa. Do you have a working title for the book? Uh, I don't even know. I don't actually have, I've had like five working titles and then I finally stopped. I don't even remember off the top of my head what they are. Um, but I, it's, it's gone through so many different iterations. Um, but I, I like where it is. And so 
I just keep plugging along. That's brilliant. Now, are you, you're not attached to any theater? When do you get to perform anymore? I don't perform very often. I like, it's been a really long time. I found when I had kids, it actually, and this was sort of an issue for me anyway, but I actually have a really hard time keeping improvisers hours. Like my brain, <laughs> my brain stops functioning after 7 p.m. It just tired. <laughs> and um, I always was somebody that like the nine o'clock show, the 10 o'clock show, that was, you were not going to get the best of me. But once I had kids, it's like, I just can't do that rapid firing in the yeah. evening. Um, so I haven't performed in, in quite a while. Um, I can't even remember the last time. So hopefully I'll get back to it though when my kids get a little older. I hope so too. Now, when you were performing, did you do musical uh, improv as well? Not as performance. I took musical improv class. Um, I took two levels of it. I absolutely loved it. That might've actually been my last performance was our showcase. Um, but I did take two levels of musical improv a couple years ago and it was so much fun. Oh my gosh, I absolutely adored it. I do. I love it myself. I love, yeah. love, love it. Cause I love to sing. Yeah, exactly. And we know that music in the brain. Now we both had a mutual teacher and that was Stephanie Anderson. Yes. I, she was never actually my teacher. Oh, okay. Um, I knew of her sort of as a legend in DC. Everybody just loved her, talked about her and she has taught me through like her writing and I've been to workshops she's done. Um, on the improv for therapists, her work in, in therapy and improv, but she was never, I never had the fortune of being coached by her, unfortunately. Everybody loved her. Oh, she's lovable. She's an incredible yeah. person. I'm yeah. dropping here a little bit. No, that's fine. <laughs> so most, all of your work then is clinical right now that you're doing. Yes. Yeah. No, not much playtime for me, except for, I mean, I feel like I play all the time with my kids. So I think that's the other thing is having kids, I'm basically improvising and playing with them so much. I feel like I'm working the muscle. I thought I was going to miss improv a lot, but I think I'm working the muscle so much with them. But I assume when they get older and they're bored with me, I'll want to go back at it. <laughs> oh, maybe not. Maybe they'll want to do improv themselves. You yeah, know. you never know. My four-year-old is quite the performer. Really? Yeah, that's what oh, we're doing at school. He's, he's quite the uh, performer. So we'll see. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. And so I was going to also ask you, um, do you miss it though? You miss performing in a way, don't you? You know, I actually, I guess a little, I don't actually miss performing as much as I miss being part of a troupe and practicing and having that regular play space of my own the performance for me was always sort of secondary like getting on the stage and doing that part um i once tried to found a troupe where we never performed we just practiced wow uh, yeah because <laughs> it was i mean i actually don't mind performing but a lot of the, my favorite players actually hated it it made them anxious so we did it for like a year it does turn out though coaches didn't want to coach us if we weren't performing and there is like a glue in performing that is important, I think, to kind of keeping the energy going. Um, but we were a non-performing, practicing only troupe for quite some time. Um, and that was really fun. Because uh, the performance for me is always just, I don't know, it's not as important as the bonding, right. the being around other improvisers I love. And I actually like rehearsals more than performing. So I miss that more probably. And the mind melding, once you're in a group, yeah. <laughs> the mind mill, yes. yes. 
Totally. <laughs> so in your therapist group, do you do a showcase with them? Have you ever done that? I haven't so far just because without, since I'm not attached to a theater, mm. it's been hard to find. I have a huge challenge with space. Um, so finding a space and figuring out how to do that. Um, so I haven't, I would like to, but it hasn't, for me to be able to organize that and find a space for it on my own has been challenging. So right now the therapist classes and my groups don't have any sort of showcase or performance. Okay. And you have a large group room that you work in? Um, I have basically my office, which is pretty large. When I do the improv for therapist class, I rent a space. So uh -huh. the next one is going to be at a school that's offered their black box, which I'm super excited about. Nice. Um, but my improv groups are, are small enough that I can actually do those in my office. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's worked really well. And what's the, what's the most students you'll take at a time? For my improv therapy groups, I've actually learned, I initially planned on having eight, like the Yalom, you know, eight is what group therapy is right. traditionally. But I find, since it's only an hour and 15 minutes, that I really don't like to go above four or five for everybody to be able to get enough time, focus. Um, so I think six is probably the absolute max. But I have found that the that even a couple less than that, people really, that's like a good amount for people to really get some playtime in there. Yeah, I agree with you. That is a great amount. Um, talk about debriefing a little bit more because some people who are listening to this are not therapists. So, they, and they, everybody knows what a debrief is, I suppose, but can we give a little more detail to those that aren't therapists, what a debrief looks like and sounds like? Sure. So in, you know, in an improv, in a, what did you call it? A normal improv or a, um, uh, in a, in an improv situation, the debrief is kind of looking at the scene, looking at what could have been better, you know, players kind of talking through what improv moves, moves would have made for a better performance. In my debriefs, I really want to look under what was happening for people during a game. Um, and this is something that any therapist already has the skills to do. It's just kind of training yourself to see it through an improv game. So usually I will start a debrief of any game saying, you know, what was hard about that? What was easy about that? What was fun about it? What was not fun? I'm very deliberate with my word choices. Um, so I like to use fun and not fun instead of more judgy sounding language. And, you know, people will say like, oh, I, you know, I got stuck. I couldn't like think of anything. And I'll kind of say like, so what was going on in your head that was like that you were thinking about instead of playing the game? And they'll say, oh, well, I was worried about if, you know, so-and-so had had a turn and I was worried about if everything was equal. That's a huge one. Um, really? So, oh yeah, I'll say, oh, so you were worried about if everybody else was getting their time versus just you playing and having fun. Is that something that you do in your life? Are you, do you sort of caretake, you know, so you can kind of, and they'll say, oh yeah, I'm a huge caretaker. I'm always worried about if everybody else is having a good time. And it's, and so then I'll say like, oh, well, how much fun are you having? Like at a party, if, if you're worried about everybody else having fun or in your family and they'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not having a lot of fun. Like I'm, you know, so that's an example of how the improv game can be used 
So it starts with like, what's fun about this game? And it usually ends on some level with, is that something that you do, you know, with other people? Do you tend to be a, you know, somebody else might say like, oh, I didn't want to mess up what they were doing. I didn't know what it was. And so, um, or they'll say, I, I wanted to get it right. I wanted to get the right answer. And I'll say, oh, are you worried in life a lot about getting it right? And they'll say, oh yeah, that's why I never, I never talk unless I'm sure. And so that's a huge part of social anxiety for people right. is like, I'm going to get it wrong or I'm going to, and so talking about like, oh, how much fun is that for you? Oh, it's not fun at all. I'm usually just sitting there really bored or really disconnected. So I tie how people are behaving in an improv group or the censoring thoughts that they're having to their outside life or their outside relationships. And sometimes you can go even deeper if it's like a two person scene around like marriage dynamics, um, dynamics that are going on at work, you know, cause if, if I know what somebody's working on clinically, I know kind of how to do that. But how people behave in an improv game is generally how they're behaving in life. And so I help them see that. And then I say like, so what if we did this differently, right? So you kind of talk this through and I'll say, what would have made this more fun? And it's like, oh, well, if I didn't have to think about everybody else. And I'll say, okay, then let's play it again. But don't think about everybody else. Trust them that they're going to do what they need to do. They either want to play or don't want to play. You do you. And let's play again. And usually that second time that we play, you'll get a ton more energy because everybody's not doing those kind of defensive anxiety filled ways of behaving and then they're like oh that was way more fun and you were way more fun and it's like oh maybe i could do that outside of here um so that's a way that a that a therapeutic improv debrief would be different from like a normal improv debrief and how i'd use it to help them see patterns um that they might be doing with other people and then the most important part is they get to try not doing those patterns right yeah it's a great chapter for your book, The Debrief. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's probably my favorite chapter to write. I love The Debrief. It's my favorite. Now, you talked about students thinking they're afraid they're going to get it wrong. They're going to make a mistake. And you, you start, I, you, I started all my classes with the uh, no mistakes, uh, but everybody thinks they're going to have them anyway. Do you yeah. do that as well? Kind of review, no mistakes, everything's okay, or... I, as I've taught more and more, I actually don't teach as much up front lately, I'm noticing, because I find if I say to people, there are no mistakes, nobody believes me anyway. Right, right, right. right, right. They're all in that place where they're like, oh yeah, I can make one. Um, so I've sort of started doing it more in the moment where somebody will be like, oh, I, you know, I screwed up, I made a mistake, and then saying, how was it a mistake? And then letting the group kind of, address it with like oh I thought that was fine or I you know could have dealt with that in x way or you know I thought it made the scene fun that you did that so I kind of tend to deal with it I question people in the debrief I sort of challenge their assumptions um especially like with zen count when people are like oh I screwed it up and I'll well how'd you screw it up well I said the thing when somebody else said the thing oh so did you screw up or were you just playing like, were you playing the game or did you screw up? Because the only way to not screw up is to stand there and do nothing. And then right. they're like, oh, I guess I was just playing. And it's like, yeah, I mean, we can reframe a lot of these things. Um, and so I tend to more in the moment kind of challenge, like, you know, was it a mistake? 
Could it be dealt with? Did the group handle it? Did it really ruin the scene? Um, or did everything just keep going on as, you know, and, and everybody worked with it and it actually maybe made the scene more fun. Um, and so I do less teaching up front these days, but that could change. I find my teaching and my group work, you know, changes all the time as yours probably does too, as we learn and shift. And I find, I like to just start my classes out playing right away. I like to get them totally. playing right away. And, um, but I could learn from you on the debrief. Now talking about learning from you, uh, you've, you've talked about maybe doing some weekend workshops for therapists who can't come up for eight weeks to DC. Yeah, I have a couple of people. You, um, I'm wondering though about like Florida, cause I have somebody else who wants me to go to Florida. I have somebody who wants me to go to LA. So I'm sort of like, where, maybe I should go to like Missouri in the middle. No, Florida. Um, <laughs> I, I have a number of people across the country who want to do this training. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out the best way to do it. But maybe Florida would be easier. I have somebody else who wants me to come down there. But yeah, I can totally do the eight-week course in about two days. Um, brilliant. For people who can't come up here. It's brilliant. So, And you've got a newsletter now. Yes, I, I just started. Pardon? I just started that. That's new. So I'm, I'm still figuring that out. But yes. That's brilliant. That's wonderful. And do you, you have anything on the horizon? Not anything specific. I'm going to keep with the newsletter. Um, I'm starting up salons for folks in DC just who want to come do. I do. I can now offer continuing edu education credit for social work for my improv stuff. So I'm looking at doing some like, you know, two and three hour salons for folks who can't do the eight week course or who have already done it. I am going to try to do a weekend intensive for people who can't do the eight week course. Um, the newsletter comes out monthly. And so I keep working on that. And I do want to start a um, improv informed couples group. So I actually want to work with, um, three or four couples in the same group is one of my uh, clinical goals that I keep working on. So that's tremendous. I was going to ask you about that. That's tremendous. Yeah. I think it'll be, um, I mean, couples therapy groups are very powerful tools anyway, but I think when you combine couples work with people remembering that they like each other and laughing together, um, it's so, it makes the, you know, the other work of couples, which can be so hard and so painful and so angry. It's just a lot easier when you're kind of remembering like, oh, I like this person and they're funny and we have things in common. Um, kind of paves the way for, to remember the good stuff, which I think we often, in therapy, I think one of the things I'm loving about the improv work is therapy is so much often about the sad stuff or the hard stuff or the angry stuff. And even patients say, you know, I, I feel like I'm only supposed to come in here with bad news. And I'm always like, no, therapy is also about getting in touch with joy and happiness. And we forget how to, those are feelings too. And so I think the improv just so connects us with that so viscerally. And I, I love watching people reconnect with joy. Makes everything that's, else a lot easier. That's it. Connecting with joy. Yeah. The connections are so important and that's wonderful. Well, I appreciate the time that you've given us today, Lisa, and we'll check Thank in you. two and a half years again. But um, I'm going to send people to your website. And I think the piece that the NBC did on your group was very nice. It was a few years ago, but that was yeah. nice. 
and some nice comments. So I applaud you for all your successes and your energy, and you're just doing wonderful things. So I'm very happy that you're in my life, and um, I wish you a wonderful day and continuing success. Thank you. You too. It's wonderful to be connected to you, as always. Absolutely. So I'm going to say goodbye now. Okay. So have a wonderful time today. And um, thank you again. Thank you.